So good evening. This is your third day. You've I'm adding my congratulations to your sense of uh, determination and hard work and effort and patience and kindness and compassion. All of these qualities that you've been developing for three days and it actually feels really wonderful. Um, certainly to us, we've had this real feeling of sweetness in this retreat, and so we thank you for that. We thank you for your work. As we have been mentioning uh, all of these past days, uh, metta is one of the four Brahma-viharas. Actually, it's the first. As Sharon translated the other night as our best home, these Brahma-viharas, our best homes. The other three we've mentioned from time to time also, um, equanimity, sympathetic joy, and Uh, compassion. And we may be tempted to look at them as uh, sort of linear practices that go from one step to the other, you know, that we start with metta and then we, loving kindness, and then we move through to to karuna, compassion, and then through to mudita, and then through to uh, equanimity. But as Sharon was saying this afternoon in the questions and answers, we've been talking about the holographic nature of uh, the Dharma, that essentially when you see one doorway or you enter through one doorway, you really enter into the whole of the Dharma and in a way it's transparent. We see through from one quality into the other. So we may um, notice that when we're practicing loving-kindness, for instance, that in the face of suffering, compassion arises naturally. That's the the quality of kindness that is meeting uh, compassion. Or if we... uh, That is meeting suffering, I'm sorry. And then if we see uh, someone who is enjoying success or happiness, then when metta meets that happiness or that joy, mudita or sympathetic joy naturally arises, this feeling of delight in the happiness of another. And equanimity is the quality that informs these uh, three Brahma Vihar, these other three Brahma Viharas. And that's what I'd like to speak to uh, tonight. Uh, equanimity, which is in a way the underlying and foundational uh, practice that infuses our kindness uh, with wisdom, our metta with wisdom. 
as Mark talked last night about uh, the hindrances, you may have all become just a little bit more acutely aware of the difficulties that you encounter as you sit and do a very simple practice. We're not asked to do much when, we're, when we get the instructions uh, from Metta. What is it really if we really look at it? You know, we're just asked to say four simple phrases or our version of four simple phrases to ourselves or to someone to whom we have uh, much gratitude. And isn't it amazing that we do this simple practice and all of a sudden all this stuff starts to happen, right? We look and there's uh, shame about doing the practice for ourselves or there's uh, difficulty in wishing ourselves happiness or difficulty in just sitting and repeating some simple phrases for really a, a short time. 45 minutes is not that long a time in the, uh, in the context of eternity, is it? <laughs> but 45 minutes starts to look really long and bleak, right? When we, when we are asked to do this very simple thing of just wishing happiness to ourselves and then to another dearly beloved person. And so it's curious to, um, to reflect on what is really going on here. As Sharon was saying in the question and answers today that, you know, if we, if we work with pain in the body, it becomes a template for pain in all aspects of our lives. And it's the same way with uh, this practice of metta or any of the Brahma Viharas. As we start to do it, we, th- what it, whatever is arising is not something that's apart from our lives, but actually it begins to illuminate what is happening in our lives. So we're doing metta phrases, we're doing phrases of loving kindness, and from nowhere, apparently, hatred arises, or disgust, or shame, or uh, boredom. And in a way, when we look at our lives, we can also see that there are opposites everywhere, there are contrasts everywhere. And the Buddha, when he talked about uh, these contrasts in life, call them the eight worldly dharmas. He said that in, in this life, there are these winds that blow through us, blow, bro, blow through our lives of uh, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. That these worldly winds are always blowing and if there is anyone here who doesn't know what I'm talking about or hasn't experienced it in their lives, I'd love to meet you. Because I think we all have seen that much of the time uh, when pleasure comes, pain is not far behind. 
much of the time we may get some success and then we have setbacks or we get gain and then there is loss or someone praises you for something that you did and you're feeling pretty good about that and then bang somebody else comes along you know and criticizes you for something else that you did and in our uh, celebrity crazed culture you know we see all of the ways in which we love to build people up just to tear them down and we much of our culture takes great delight in doing that so we live with these eight uh, worldly dharmas uh, blowing through our lives um, constantly and yet much of what I heard in the interviews today um, were some bewilderment as to why there was um, not just bliss in this in this retreat, right? Why there isn't just bliss coming up if we're doing either a meditation practice or a, a metta practice, which is, after all, loving kindness and the cultivation the cultivation of the heart and a way to produce kindness in the heart, right? And we sit, and there's pain in the knee, and there's pain in the back, and boredom, and sleepiness, and all of those hindrances that Mark talked about. So how are we to practice? How are we to practice with these um, eight worldly winds, and despite our best efforts and our best intentions to have... um, a life of ease, and even our deep wishes and deep aspirations for this life of ease, uh, that despite those good intentions and those great efforts, it doesn't seem to be happening, at least not all the time. And we may have a, we may have a, um, a flash of ease or a flash of wisdom or insight or even perhaps if we're really lucky, we may have a, a moment when our heart actually opens in this meta practice. And there is this feeling of love and kindness and um, radiating goodwill towards ourselves and other beings. But then pretty soon after comes perhaps anger, rage, frustration. So many contrasts. So how can our hearts stay open and not shatter, not break into a million tiny pieces at the sadnesses of this life and the difficulties that come? I work in a prison, uh, a maximum security prison for women. Uh, I volunteer um, teaching meditation and uh, dharma And I'm always struck when I leave my comfortable home and drive just 10 minutes away and enter these gates of steel and barbed wire. And um, there, at the entrance of the prison, there are two steel gates that you have to, well, actually, there are four. There, There are two sliding bar doors, and then two heavy steel doors that are electronically operated, and they make this god-awful noise 
when they when it clicks open and then a banging noise when it shuts and so by the time i've reached the fourth door the fourth gate i actually know that i've entered a completely different world and i'm always uh, struck by uh, the contrast how i a minute before i was in a i was in a place of comfort and ease and freedom physical freedom and then i walk into this place where i'm locked in and subjected to subject to very very stringent rules about what i can and can't do and what i can and can't say and who i can and can't speak to and it's it's not very far away it's 10 minutes away and i always as i walk in um feel the heaviness of my heart that there are uh women there that are spending um that are looking forward to spending 50 50 years to life or 75 years to life or 25 years to life and it is always a call on to me of how they can bear it because i can hardly bear it when i when i enter the prison and then as i as i walk into the prison and i meet with the women that study with me it again opens up so that it's as if we were in the middle of a great beautiful field of grass and flowers and the bars disappear and the rules disappear and all that's left are, are them and me or i should say us because it doesn't feel as i teach them that i'm any different from them and yet there is this difficulty there is this um persistent feeling of oppression and um frustration at the injustice for some of them and the inequality that happens in our culture and in our society so there's that contrast again of feeling uh the freedom and feeling the oppression and it reminds me of uh visiting the taj mahal in india and where there were a lot of tourists as you can imagine if or if you've been there as you know and there's this beautiful building of um beautiful cool white marble and as you go in there's a sort of awe and wonder that it was built in the time that it was built and there's a um a feeling of uh luxury and beauty and yet right outside there is um grinding poverty and um people with nowhere to live and who are making very very little even though they're working 18 and 19 hours a day with hardly enough to feed their families so there's that contrast again so as we sit uh here together 
doing metta and feeling the very opposite of metta and feeling uh, all of these um, uh, emotions, feelings, moods, and states of mind that appear to be the very opposite, we're not really outside of life. We're really uh, right in the thick of it. We're in the thick of uh, all of the ways in which uh, these blessings and vicissitudes sit and live side by side. And it may feel uh, unrelenting and sometimes overwhelming. So the question becomes, can we can we be happy in the midst of this life of opposites and of contrast? If you've looked, you've seen that human life is a mixed bag of joys and sorrows, what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And with these practices, what we are hoping uh, that you will discover is that it is possible to have peace and compassion and loving-kindness and equanimity, not apart from, but in the very face of the humanity that we are, in the very face of the sorrows and the difficulties that we as human beings faced, face. So it's this quality of equanimity that helps us to discover the possibility of happiness in the, uh, in the midst of the shifting and changing circumstances of life where we see these blessings and vicissitudes living side by side. This quality of equanimity that teaches us how to work with our conditioned reactions to the vicissitudes of life that come. You may have noticed that as we sit, pleasant experiences come, and we like them, and we'd like to hold on to them. If we get a state of mind that is joyous and delighting and happy, we think, ah, something's going right. I'm doing this practice, right? And perhaps at the next sitting, you say, ah, now let me see. How did I, how was I sitting when that came up? How, let's see, my back wasn't quite that straight, so I think I'll slump a little bit. And um, let's see, it, it was... Oh, I had two cushions, so maybe I should get three because maybe it was because my back was really happy and comfortable. So let me see if I can just... And what were the phrases that I was repeating? Yeah, I I think I'll repeat them in exactly the same order. And we try very much to hold on to what was a pleasant state. And then if a difficult state comes, you know, the the self-critic or the 
judgment or the aversion or the sleepiness or the boredom, then we think, oh, missed it. I'm not doing it right. Something's gone wrong. I should be. And when you hear that word should, be really, really vigilant and alert. I should be doing something different. Maybe it's the states, maybe it's the phrases I'm using. Maybe I need to switch the phrases or I need to do something or I need to sit on a chair where I was sitting on the cushion. Something else, something's going wrong. And so when the unpleasant states come, because we think that they signal that there's something wrong, we want to push them away and we struggle and strive to make them different. And much of the time when states come that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neither pleasurable nor painful, we ignore them, we miss them. We don't even notice that they've arrived. Much of that because we tend to um, have our aliveness depend on strong feelings. So when a feeling arrives that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we miss it. We go into delusion and uh, perhaps even confusion. I remember when I was practicing in Burma uh, a few years ago and I'd reached a really lovely, it was about uh, three weeks, two and a half weeks into the retreat and things had really settled down and the mind was really calm and I would sit and not much difficulty in um, in coming to a place of really uh, ease and acceptance. Whatever was happening was absolutely fine. There was even, dare I say, a little bit of bliss. And there was, I'd sit and walk and, and the transition seemed wonderful and everything was just heaven. And I thought, this is it. I'm really, I've done it now. Right, I've. That's it. I've. I've really gotten there. And I'll, I, it was. It was lovely because Saturday morning we start. Um, we started. Our wake up call was at three thirty. So you think you're really being pressed. Um, and the first sit was at four, and went into the meditation hall and fully expected that this entire this this whole feeling of well being would continue sat down, and of course the mind settled down right away. It was really wonderful and just blissful. And out of nowhere, out, sort of out of the void, came this sound. And it was a sound that was really familiar. But I couldn't quite grasp why it was familiar. And it was jarring, and it was awful, and it was um, shrill and shrieking. And I sort of listened a little bit more, and I realized that what I was hearing was lipstick on your collar in Burmese. (laughs) And I thought, this can't be right, right? this can't be right, this has to be a nightmare, maybe I really didn't wake up, maybe it was, maybe I'm really still asleep, and it's just a nightmare. And uh, I thought, well, 
you know, whoever it is, it's obviously a mistake, right? Because it's four o'clock in the morning. So who would possibly be pay, be playing lipstick on your collar through a loudspeaker? <laughs> and so I waited, and I thought, you know, this this is going to end because it's obviously a mistake. And so I thought, well, I'll just stop meditating until they stop playing this, right? And it went on and on and on and on, and I was getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And, you know, there was this feeling of, we're meditating here. This is a monastery. Don't they know that there are people meditating here? And what was wonderful was that at breakfast that morning, we were told that there was a wedding in the village and that the custom was that when there's a wedding in the village, music is played all weekend. (laughs) (laughs) So so we we had a choice, right? And the choice was that um, either we could stay um, upset and angry and um, think that we could control, uh, you know, because all of these thoughts went through my mind, maybe we should just go down to the village and explain to them, right, that we're <laughs> meditating and what, you know. What it, or we could actually turn our attention to what was happening. We could turn our attention to what was happening not only in terms of what the unpleasantness of the experience, but also our reactions to it. And it turned out to be a very rich weekend for me because I actually, uh, my practice actually settled down even further once I realized that there was no controlling the circumstance. And as a matter of fact, I became quite happy at the thought that two young people were getting married and that there was just a lot of joy in the, in the village and a lot of celebration and delight and that outside of the walls of the monastery was a great celebration. And in addition to that, Uh, what happened with my practice was just the ability to turn to all of the anxiety and the annoyance and the irritation and looking at how just um, being willing to accept what was happening made all of the difference to, uh, to the practice that I could not control the sound, but that I actually could work with uh, the hearing of the sound, my uh, responses to the sound, my initial reactivity to to the sound, and I could actually see the difference between the reactivity in the beginning, the wanting to hold on to the state of mind that was pleasant, the um, the 
hearing of what what came up in my mind as um, unpleasant and painful, wanting to struggle with it, to push it away, to not make it exist anymore, to bomb it out of existence if, if necessary, in order that my meditation could continue. And just to see the, all of the ways in which um, there was no controlling the sound, there was no controlling um, the initial reaction that came, but also understanding that there was no, um, that adding aversion to the reaction, to the aversive reaction, was also not going to get me anywhere. And being able to let all of that go, to let all of that drop, and to actually be able to practice in the midst of the, um, all of the, and I don't even remember what the other songs were because lipstick on your collar was so predominant, but all of the other songs that came and went, and being able to work with just the acceptance of what was happening made uh, the entire uh, retreat completely worthwhile. And in a way, the ability to work with that difficulty was a much more important step in the development of my practice than the sweet states of mind that had come just from um, the practice of concentration and mindfulness. And that's not to underestimate the value of those states or to uh, deny or negate the sweetness of those states. But actually what I realized was that the learning actually came uh, in the difficulty and that the willingness and the ability to work with it, to find centeredness in the midst of difficulty was indeed um, the deepest lesson, the deepest um, progress. This is a letter uh, that a friend of mine wrote after he um, went to Ground Zero after September 11th to do some uh, counseling. He went on uh, September 12th. And he went, um, he had come back from a retreat uh, seven days before it happened. He said, as I entered ground zero, I experienced, instead of my um, anticipation of horror, horror for overwhelming, the overwhelming terror and chaos, I experienced instead a feeling of awe like entering a great cathedral or the Grand Canyon. The remaining buildings surrounding the area where the Twin Towers had stood formed an enormous amphitheater, a sacred circle and burial ground. It was both infinite and intimate. 
I felt my heart break wide open. As I watched in stillness and stood at the top of a hill without moving for nearly 30 minutes, the words that came to me were, Oh, this is how it is. This is who I am. This is the way the world is. This is the way of life and death. This is the nature of things. Everything that is created comes and goes, comes together and falls apart. Everything. All of history seemed to be there. Visions of ancient civilizations rising and falling flashed through my mind, and I had an intense awareness of both the preciousness of human birth and the fleeting nature of life. I felt grief for those who had died and for the families who would live on without them. But I also felt a deep sense of hurt for the continuing ignorance and insanity of the human race. But nothing was missing. My mind just stopped or seemed to drop away. And in the seeing, it was as if everything was present as vast open space. It was as if love and hate, life and death, the inner and outer, all experience moved as an infinite space of consciousness. There was only seamless, empty, silent, vast, loving light. On top of the hill of rubble in ground zero, amidst all the sadness and loss, it was as if a veil had parted and revealed a luminous, loving presence that had been hidden but was always there. Like Jesus saying, split a piece of wood and I am there. Then he goes on and at the end he says, the next weekend, as I was taking a run in Central Park, I saw a friend running in the other direction. I waved and as he passed, I began to cry. I felt so alive with the wind blowing at my skin and the trees around me appreciating every moment. I ran and I cried in the vast open heart of my city. And then he quotes Denise Levertov from City Psalm. Nothing was changed. All was revealed otherwise. Not that horror was not. Not that the killings did not continue. Not that I thought there was to be no more despair. But that as if transparent, all disclosed an otherness that was blessed, that was bliss. I saw paradise in the dust of the street. And it's how it is. That's how life is. There's, there are always these opposites with which we're working. And equanimity teaches us that there isn't, um, there isn't anything wrong when what comes is sadness after the happiness or death after life or sickness after health, or health after sickness, or birth after death. But that this constant 
movement of life like a river is what we are doing here, that humanity is not different, is not outside of these opposites, these contrasts. And equanimity, which can be the, the, the root of the word upeka, is sometimes um, described as equanimity, and, and it's more, most commonly known as equanimity, but it's also sometimes translated as discerning rightly or viewing justly. And it also means to look over, to see without being caught in what we see. And this ability to, to look and see perhaps not only uh, the, in the small microcosm, but also to actually understand the, macroco- the macrocosm, to look so clearly that we not only see what is the small um, details of life, but also to see in the larger perspective. And when we are able to see and to accept and not to be caught by what we see, this gives rise to a sense of peace. And peacefulness, the Buddha said, is the highest happiness. Sometimes equanimity or upeka is also translated as to see with patience or it's uh, likened to grandmotherly love so that it's love that is um, see is with understanding and not with the attachment um, that it sometimes carries. Or it can mean being in the middle or in balance. We've been talking a lot on this retreat about balance and this, this uh, sense of equanimity, of being able to sit in the middle of these eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, is this ability to be centered, to actually see without being caught, to actually come to a sense of peace because we understand that these qualities, these contrasts, these opposites are the very fabric of life. And when we understand that they're not, that they are the fabric of life, then we don't become attached to the credit side, right? We don't see success and give it a plus and then see failure and give it a minus. And we don't see praise and get so caught by it that we become arrogant or conceited because we know that blame will surely come. And if we encounter failure, we're not so feeling so incompetent or inadequate. And if we're in the midst of pain, we, we're not discouraged because we know that these are, this is part of life, very much part of the fabric of life. So our sense of um, well-being is not dependent on the 
on the, the four positive parts of the eight worldly winds. But actually, it's the, found, the very foundation of our peace and of our happiness is in the, this even balance, this even uh, perspective that we have um, on both sides, neither being attached to what is pleasant nor struggling with what is unpleasant. Upeka uh, is sometimes um, said to be the culmination of the four Brahma-viharas because it's, um, it infuses and informs the activity of uh, the other three. It being the spacious quality of heart that embraces a wholehearted presence with all that is, with all of the changing circumstances of our inner and outer lives. And equanimity can be cultivated both in our awareness practice and in our Brahma-vihara practice. In fact, it's, uh, it's ubiquitous in the teachings. It's the fourth of the four Brahma-viharas, as I've been saying, it's the seventh of the seven factors of enlightenment, and it's the tenth of the uh, ten paramitas, the perfections of a Buddha. What equanimity teaches us is that we can let go of uh, the results of our efforts, that we can relax our attachment to particular states of mind. We can relax our attachment to our practice looking a certain way. And if if you pay attention and become alert to what is happening on a moment-to-moment basis in your practice, you may notice sometimes um, it's gross, but sometimes it may be a very subtle uh, flavor of wanting our practice to look a certain way. A very subtle flavor of thinking, uh, you know, if, if my heart is open and it feels warm, and as I say the the phrases, I'm feeling as if um, I really understand what happiness is and I'm really understanding what what, um, well-being is and health and and ease, that then my practice is working. But that if I'm saying the phrases over and over and over again and I'm not feeling anything, then my practice isn't working. So instead of this duality, instead of this way of looking to see what the results are, you may want to just simply ask yourself the question with the metta practice of, am I simply meeting whatever situation is arising with a warm and open heart? Because in what we're really teaching and what you're really practicing is that. It's just the wisdom of loving-kindness, the wisdom 
of meeting whatever is arising, whatever that is, with this heart, this heart of greatness, this heart of loving kindness, this heart of warmth. And so the cultivation of just that simple warmth is all that is asked of you. And that, do, that doesn't mean that every moment of every day is going to be a, 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 a mo- every moment is going to be filled with this feeling of warmth or loving kindness because it's a practice. And so we slip and we, and we return. We slip and we return. And that's uh, equanimity helps us to, um, to move uh, smoothly and gracefully through all of those moments when we forget. And then as we, um, as we are reminded and we come back, we know that we're actually in the practice. And it doesn't require that it manifests in this way or in that way. But actually just meeting every experience with the heart of warmth and ease. And, at the, and that means that we're even meeting the experience of not having a heart of warmth and ease with a heart of warmth and ease. Do you know what I mean? Right? So even when we see that, you know, the, the critic that Mark was talking about and that some of you have described in the questions and in the interviews, uh, even when that is coming up, ah, this too, this too, this too. And that's the way of balance, of being able to actually see that these emotions, these moods of the mind are coming and going, and they're not controllable. They're not, it's not as if you asked them, did you? Did you invite these states of mind to come? No, they just arose. And so we can, what we can change, is, as, as we've been saying, is not the arising of these um, adventitious states of mind, but actually our relationship to them is what we, is what we can, um, what we have some ability to do so that we're not talking about controlling the mind so much as we're um, helping, cultivating this way of meeting whatever arises with this heart of kindness. And that includes us. That includes everything about uh, everything that's happening in every moment for you. So we let go of results. And um, when we start to let go of results, then this feeling of peace becomes nearer than near. What helps in our ability to do that is this recognition of the uncontrollability of phenomena. And when I say phenomena, I mean even the contents of our own minds. You may have noticed that too in these last three days, right? You're sitting and breathing or saying the phrases and pop, it comes, this thought, 
from nowhere about, you know, the red shoes that you had when you were a six-year-old girl and what happened to those shoes and your sister stole them and she's always had that habit. Tragic. (laughs) And when I get home, I'm really going to talk to her about that because, you know, it really did... It really did uh, traumatize me, right? I've never been able to wear the color red ever since, you know? And it's... So who invited that, right? So this recognition of the uncontrollability of phenomena. And you may also have noticed that these states of mind come and go. You may have noticed that whether it's the, the weather or the contents of our mind or sensations in the body or um, moods of the mind, that all of these are coming and going, that nothing stays the same, that everything is impermanent. So there's this, once we understand that, that there's impermanence and uncontrollability and that even when we try to hold on to what is pleasant it may change in our very hands that something that was pleasant that we hold on to changes and becomes unpleasant did you ever eat a whole gallon of ice cream right that started out chocolate really good Right. I'm sorry to bring that up in the middle of a retreat. <laughs> but you know, so even even what we start out thinking of as pleasant and um, that we could live with for the rest of our lives and that we could just take more and more and more, eventually, it becomes unsatisfactory. Just as uh, what is unpleasant from the very beginning is. So the recognition of our inability to control and the impermanence of all things helps to cultivate this, um, this heart of equanimity, this, mi- this mind-heart of equanimity, this capacity to be there without clinging to what is pleasant or pushing away what is unpleasant. It strengthens the capacity to be okay with what is coming and going, to be okay with the eight worldly winds. And it's a spacious balance that enables us to work then rather with rather than against change, the natural change in life. So it's said that the near enemy of um, equanimity is indifference or apathy or withdrawal or insulation. Sometimes we think with spiritual life that if we're instructed or we are cultivating a heart that um, doesn't have these prejudices, that isn't attached to what's pleasant or isn't um, averse to what is unpleasant, that when we'll, then we'll turn into some kind of um, uh, formless, Thing that you know just sort of sits around like the cat 
and uh, doesn't do much, you know, that in the face of injustice or in the face of um, difficulties that, you know, we'll just say, oh, well, you know, it's karma or it's impermanent or I can't control it anyway, so I may as well just lie here and read a book and eat my chocolates or my gallon of ice cream. But it, it's not that. that. This is called the near enemy of, um, of equanimity, this indifference or apathy. This um, saying from Martin Luther King that is a beautiful example of the willingness to endure uh, suffering, the willingness to endure what the difficulties of life and still not lose. Uh, our qualities of love or of compassion. He says, to our most bitter opponents, we say we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. So this quality of willingness to be with what is difficult is not at all wimpy and doesn't leave us either so overwhelmed and overcome by the difficulty or apathetic to injustice or to sadness or sorrow, but actually gives a strength, a strength of heart and a strength of being that is able to endure what is difficult and yet meet it with a heart of kindness and a heart of love. When we are willing 
to meet difficulty with this heart that is open and courageous, a heart that is balanced, that understands with wisdom the nature of the way things are. When we are at peace with the way things are, then our being becomes peaceful and everything becomes peaceful around us. And it's a tremendous gift and it's something that the world really needs very badly. And all the people in our life and all of the things that it ripples out to can be affected by it. Just your place of peace, your sense of being centered and open to whatever comes. So let's sit for a moment before we end. And as you sit, just reflect on what are the things in your life that are beautiful, the blessings that are in your world, the things that are your deepest aspiration. And all of the ways in which we're not getting what we want. Or we're getting what we don't want. And see if you can actually open your heart to both. What is beautiful? And what is in your life that may not be as satisfactory as you would like it to be. Notice your ideas of how you think things are supposed to be. And just notice it is how it is. And see if your heart can open 